Put him in the aisle. Gets a shotgun snap. Final play of the game. Ron waiting for the wideouts to get downfield. Launches the throw down toward the goal line. Going up. Ball tipped in the air. Caught. Touchdown. Jordan Westerkamp. Nebraska wins the game on the final play of the contest. Oh, baby. Side back to throw is Martinez. Now being chased, throws it out. A flat Burkhead makes a catch. Sits a tackle. 25 20, 15 10, 5. Rex Burkhead. Touchdown, Nebraska. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for joining us. Uh, we got two of the three here tonight. Myself, Zach, as you all know, joined by our guy, Drake. Drake, how are you doing tonight, buddy? I'm doing good, man. Uh, it's been a short weekend with some pretty good news all across the board but uh not looking forward back to a case of the mondays tomorrow yeah it's fabulous isn't it? how uh how quick these weekends go but i mean good news is at least tonight we got a lot to talk about just some different yep, things and you know what i've been going on in nebraska sports and big games coming up i guess right yeah yeah and you know unfortunately this is going to be my last recording till i come back from florida um because I'll be out on Wednesday again, but once I'm back from Florida, I'll be we'll be locked in and ready to go for everything else. Nice. Well, let me uh, let let me set the table. Set the table. You know, I had this question that was I wanted I was going to ask later in the show, depending on you know how the show went. But I, you know, why not start off with a big question? I think they'll generate a lot of questions. Okay. So you 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 brought this up uh, before about Trev Alberts. Uh, basically, that Matt Rule would not be his only hire as a athletic director. Essentially, it would be his first hire if everything goes well in the football program. Yeah. Do you think, like I said, this is going to be a big question, but do you think Matt Rule can bring Nebraska back to the point where we have to worry about him getting another job? Now, yes, I, I do. Okay. I, I, I bring that up because I was just kind of reading through a couple message boards today on, uh, I think it was on three, and just kind of g- gathering everyone's excitement or panic or anything like that, however you want to describe it on Matt Rule, but just kind of wondering your thoughts on it so far. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I want to I wanna go back, back to the question itself and, and make sure – that the fans understand the premise of the question. Cause most of this stuff was usually us behind closed doors or BS and on Twitter. Yeah. My, my opinion is that Matt rule will not be Trev's only football hire like Bill Moose intended Scott Frost to be. And the reason I say that is because of where we're at now if rule gets us back to a level of competitiveness where we are consistently in the big 10 championship conversation um, and an outlier at the playoff potentially, or, you know, even if we're just getting back to eight and nine wins from where we have come from under rules, watch that's going to be enough for a big time program or somebody in a slightly better situation to come calling at that point. I think that is going to be, I, I think Trev is going to have to hire somebody to replace Matt Rule because Rule moved on, not because we moved on from Rule. And I've actually, I've actually said that prior to Rule being named as the head coach. I, I thought that was going to be the way it worked out, no matter what. And there's nothing wrong with that. I truly believe that at every level of football, between the school and between the coach, there is a peak that they can reach. Now, Nebraska has a higher peak that we just haven't come close to for years, and Rule has a peak, and Rule and Nebraska together have a peak. And I think we will hit that that peak of Rule and Nebraska together before we will truly hit Nebraska's peak. So you kind of got a level. Um, you know, the simplest analogy for me is, is buying houses. You don't start off buying a $1.2 million house as an everyday home buyer, right? You buy your starter home, you live there for a few years, you build up equity, you sell that, you use all the money that you generated from that house to buy your next house. 
And you do that three or four times to get to that next level. Football, college football, college athletics are are very similar. Now, you might not have to do it three, four, five times. You might only have to do it twice, whatever. But I think Matt Rule is going to hit a peak, much like Bo did, where he's not going to be able to get over the hump. I don't think we will fire Rule for getting there. I think Rule will take a more alluring job at that point. So, you know, normally I wouldn't have brought it up if it wasn't something that we've at least publicly talked about somewhat because I feel like that's – I don't want to say it's begging for clicks or anything like that with that question, but it's it's something we've talked about previously. Am I crazy to think that there's only really one job? Now, granted, obviously he's got a ton of rebuilding to do, but I'm really only worried about him taking one job right now in college or pros. Am I crazy for thinking that him to Penn State would be the only job I'm super concerned about him leaving for? Um, I would say within the conference, yes. Um, at, across the country, I let me rephrase my answer because my answer said you were crazy. Uh, no, I think within the conference, the only school that we should be worried about with him right now is Penn State. Now, do I think there are other jobs out there that could lure him away two, three, four years down the road? Absolutely. What happens if Sarkeesian, you know, flames out at Texas and you have three of the number one quarterbacks for three straight classes there? It's going to be hard to say no to Texas, right? Um, Texas has the resources, the players right in your backyard. And as we've seen with him in his short time in Nebraska, he's got pipelines in Texas. Exactly. I mean, with what he did at Baylor, too. Um, now, I do I think Alabama would come calling if Nick Saban retired? Probably not. But, I mean, if Alabama or Georgia did come calling, he's got a deep pipeline in Georgia, too, already. Hard to say no to those schools if they come knocking. Right. Um, a school that I would say is much more realistic to come knocking that, again, would probably be more alluring than Nebraska is right now is a school like Florida. Is a school like UCLA, um, where they already have you know fertile recruiting grounds. Uh, they recruit at a very high level. Not to say that he's not going to be able to recruit at a high level to Nebraska. Um, Florida is probably a lot easier to recruit to just because of all the in-state talent. Yeah, and you know a, a school like UCLA and USC jumping into the Big Ten. I think it'll be an interesting stylistic change for them. Uh, you know, a school like Florida or a Texas or even in a few years down the line, maybe even a Texas A&M, depending on how things transpire with the Jimbo situation, I could see those schools becoming more alluring. But honestly, if Rule does what he's supposed to do, does it, it don't you view Nebraska as somewhere that could be a career job, though, still? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um I mean, you're in one of the top – there's two conferences, SEC and the Big Ten at this point. Yeah. Um, Do I think Nebraska down the road could be a career job? Absolutely. I don't think it's going to be a career job for Matt Rule. I've also been very firm on this belief that, you know, after a few of these last standing guys retire, you know, like Nick Saban, I don't think you're going to see a lot of 10- to 12-year coaches anymore at a program. I just – I think that is gone. So – you're going to have to find another Tom Osborne type guy, right? And, you know, I hate the comparison to Tom Osborne, but if you want it to be a career job, you're going to have to find somebody like him that, that will stay loyal to a program for 20 years. But at the same time, the program has to stay loyal to that coach. And, you know, you saw a little bit of it this year with Alabama and they only had two losses where people were saying Saban's done. He's, you know, he's he's done. And while we on the insane. outside looking in are laughing, right, we think that's comical. Um, at, at some places, and Nebraska could be one of those places, too, that, that can be like that at times. It, it's not hard to foresee a world where Matt Rule has goes on a, on a run of, you know, four or five win seasons with eight to nine wins, maybe even a 10 thrown in there. And then he has two two seasons at six wins. Do I think our fan base would probably turn on him to an extent? Yeah, I do. I really do. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, at the same point, like, does the athletic department turn on him in that that instance? Um, I 
I don't feel like coaches nowadays are going to get the benefit of the doubt if you show a multi-year downturn. So I, I do want to compare him to another coach and where I, I think Matt Rule's ceiling kind of is, and it's actually going to be James Franklin. I think James, I think Rule at Nebraska could have a James Franklin type ceiling. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that's kind of the the highs that Franklin has hit with the resources that they've got at Penn State. I feel like Matt Rule could be that same guy. And he, you know, he's got a really backloaded contract as well, which obviously helps Nebraska in the beginning while you get to the building stages to be able to mm-hmm. build a staff and different things like that. I just feel like even when James Franklin had a down year or two, which his down year I think was like a seven and five year, it's it's weird when you when you see how the depths a program can get to, like after the paternal thing and, and all that kind of good stuff. When those coaches mm-hmm. took over, you got a – I don't say a similar situation, but you've got another rebuild that Matt Rule's taken over. I just think the parallels between the two are, are, are really kind of interesting when you think about where they both come from. You know, Franklin's had a lot of down programs. Same thing with Rule. You know, Baylor um, was a rebuild for Rule. Um, Vanderbilt was essentially a rebuild for Franklin. It's just kind of been interesting to see the parallels between those two, and they're both Penn State guys. Like I said, that's the only job I'm worried about him taking, but maybe that's kind of why I'm drawing the comparison between the two. Yeah, no, I, I think – I think that's probably his dream job at the college level, right? It would have um, to be. It's his alma mater. He's Yeah, he was a walk-on there. But, I mean, like I said, I I think – I don't know that his ceiling has us in playoff contention. And, you know, once we're on the cusp of being in playoff contention, that's what we will come to expect uh, as a fan base. I mean, hell, for three or four years – after Nebraska made it to the NCAA tournament in basketball, Tim Miles, we kind of used that as our expectation when we weren't there yet. Um, we are really quickly to think that we are, as a fan base, we really quickly jump to the idea that we're back when we're when we're not necessarily back. And a, as much as I I like to, you know, pick at that, it's one of my favorite things about this fan base is the hope and optimism every year. So, you know. Give or take a little bit here and there. I just think with rule, our ceiling is probably very similar to where it was with Bo. Um, now, if I had to pick one of those two to, to get over that, you know, climb that peak and get above it, it would be rule just because his staff is far superior at recruiting. Yeah. And, and so, this was something I thought Bo was good at, at on a certain side of the ball, the defensive side of the ball, obviously. You know, they were able to develop defensive talent from getting a guy on campus to pushing him, I would say, to the next level. They weren't able to do it so much on the offensive side of the ball. Do you feel like Nebraska is finally under rule taking the developmental title and putting it on the program or at least trying to? I, I think that's the goal. Um, I think that's why you see some of these guys that they offered, you know, one of the wide receivers we offered only had 500 yards receiving his senior year of high school, um, but was a three star, uh, like a, a three sport freak athlete, you know, great track times played basketball really well. Um, I, I think they're going to take a lot more chances on some of these guys that are, you know, quote unquote diamond in the rough and, and see what they can do with them because, you know, you do that with a couple of guys, Jalen Lloyd being one of them, who really had no Power 5 football offers. You turn a couple of those guys into key contributors, you're going to get some more of those guys that are even considered project guys at places like Georgia. Um, now, does Georgia take on a whole lot of project players? No. But the ones that they do, you might have a better shot at them if you've developed you know, somebody similar to him. At, at Nebraska, I th- I think that's their goal is to show that they can develop talent. That's their primary focus. Yeah, it seems like they've got a uh, specific. I don't want to say profile because it's not a certain height, weight, measurable that you have to hit, but you've got to have certain athletic gifts that they can mold guys into. I mean, you're seeing guys that you know Malachi Coleman obviously was recruited by the previous staff, but Jalen Lloyd, you know Bryce Turner, Eric Fields. 
And then even if you go to the transfer portal, you got like Jeff Sims, Chief Borders, Elijah Judy. Like you've got some freakish guys coming into the program. So an overall upgrade of talent will be brought in. I think I think with what Rule has done, they've brought in like 40-some-odd four-star or five-star previous players into the staff or onto the roster. So huge infusion of talent. But do you feel like – because I, I personally do. I feel like the – developmental program tag has gotten a bad name because of what people think it should mean. Um, I think it has here at Nebraska. And that's just because for the last seven years, we really haven't developed anybody. Right. Um, well, I feel like when people that. compare it to like an Iowa or Wisconsin, it still gets a negative connotation. See, I don't, I don't know because Iowa's still pumping out a lot of guys into the pros. They even put out wide receivers into the pros and an offense that doesn't, you know, throw the ball. Um, I don't know that the developmental program has gotten a bad title. I feel like Nebraska's ability to develop to develop has gotten a bad title. Um, and you know that this is this is going to come off as kind of a shot at the previous staff, but. Look at a guy like Wandale Robinson, right? Um, does he get drafted as high as he did if he stays at Nebraska for all four years? No, he doesn't get drafted at all. It, exactly. And some of that is just, you know, we missed on other guys here and there. Uh, but a lot of that is, you know, we didn't use guys the right way for a lot of in a lot of spots, you know. I mean, I thought our offensive game plan was terrible for Adrian Martinez the majority of the time. Everything was – and you can even go back to Casey Thompson last year, and that's under different offensive staff. We were just always we, – we tried to make hard plays look easy instead of just making play easy plays. Um, you know, Casey Thompson – I still, I still think my my argument here holds a little bit of water. I think Casey's size versus our offensive line size and the routes that we ran forced him to drop too far back regularly, which allowed a straight line from the edge rusher, uh, which I think played a huge part in the offensive line struggles and pass protection. If he can do a three-step drop instead of a seven, I think we're looking at far less sacks, far less hits on the quarterback but every offensive lineman was six 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 eight, and it's hard to see those guys on the short crossing routes when you are you know five eleven as a quarterback. So I think I think there's just a little bit of that that goes into some of our problems. Um, I, we had a lot of pieces that didn't fit together in the puzzle, in my opinion. Yeah, and and going off what you were saying about Casey, I mean, you know, when your offensive lineman, the shortest one, six foot five, and that's most likely your center, you as a five eleven quarterback doing a three or even a five step drop, it's damn near impossible because you can't see over the redwoods that are in front of you. So yeah, it takes it to a seven, and your tackles don't have the lateral quickness to be able to get out and get a hand on edge rusher. Makes sense why we saw a lot of the chaos we did, but one thing that the staff has also brought up and rule was, was interviewed about this is not only the advances they are making in the weight room because they're making some big advances there. And we'll talk about Corey Campbell here again in a few minutes, but it's more off the, off the field. You know, you've got guys doing the cryo cold plunge sauna. Another big thing is this staff, they've actually got physical therapists on staff to work with these guys at all mm-hmm. times. So one of the biggest things he said we can do for these guys is give them health. Done it just to me. A lot of small overlooked things are being fixed right now, just with how these guys' bodies operate. I mean, you were a you know, you played college basketball. You know, if your body's not right or doesn't feel right for some reason or another, you can't go out there and perform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in football, this conversation is probably had a lot more often than it is in sports like basketball and baseball, but there's a difference between being injured and being hurt. You're, you're, you're hurt, hurt all season long in just Everybody about hurts. every sport. Um, if it's something that can limit you from, pl- from competing at a high level, that, then you're injured. And I think we looked past a lot of injuries under the previous staff because, you know, call it what it is. I, I just think we had an old school mentality from the staff in that regards around injuries and, and being hurt. Like, Hey, if you can go at all, you're going. And 
in some spots that was a detriment. Some spots they had to because they didn't have the talent behind the starter, right? Um, you look at Adrian for four years. Who could really backfill that? Nobody. Um, as much as we thought he could. Now, when it comes to this strength and conditioning and everything that they're putting into the staff right now, I go back to just how much we neglected stuff previously. I mean, we thought that that first round of winter conditioning with Frost staff, when a couple of those guys went down with rhabdomyalgia, we we're like, oh, these guys are actually getting worked out. Like, this is good. And in reality, we weren't paying attention to the signs. Uh, part of that goes to, you know, we all had the belief that there was no weight weightlifting under the Riley staff. No squats. Um. <laughs> And I just – there's a lot of small things, like you said, being being changed here. Um, you know, a lot of off-the-field stuff, whether it's personal growth and development within having kind of like a mentor around to physical therapists and chiropractors on staff. Like, that stuff matters, man. Um, I remember the second school I played basketball at in college, I dislocated my shoulder. We didn't even have a trainer at the games to take care of it. Um, you know, I went into a concussion protocol that I basically monitored myself after a game because we had no trainer. The, these people that are there to take care of these athletes are, are there to protect them from themselves too. Cause nobody wants to sit out ever. Um, even if you know that you're only 50%, you still want to go out there and give it, give it your all. And I don't know, man, it's just, it's really disheartening to see, how much was overlooked for the last 10 years. Like I'm not just putting this on Frost staff. I'm putting putting part of it on Bo's staff, part of it on Riley's staff. Like there's a lot. I mean, Zach Duvall said it in one of his first interviews when he got here from UCF. We are 20 years behind in strength and conditioning, um, both from equipment, both from technology and like how we monitor this stuff. And that's what's scary because that's what made us so dominant in the 90s is how far ahead we were of everybody. Yeah, the Husker Power Program or whatever you want to, however you wanted to, whatever you want to call it, I should say at this point, the weightlifting program and the development of the the university, that was the reason the program was so successful. Now, now let's not act like there wasn't talent. There was five-star talent all over the place. This was just before mm-hmm. that rivals and all that existed. But interesting little nugget with, you know, the profile that these guys recruit to, I guess in the past NFL scouting combine two of the top three 40 yard dash times were Baylor guys that Matt rule recruited. And the third one was a guy that Matt rule recruited that just went to UTSA. So, I mean, it just sounds like they've got a, a very distinct skill that they like and that speed. Yeah. I mean, speed and explosiveness, like short phone booth explosiveness is what I like to call it. Like, Hand-to-hand combat, close quarters, that's something that they're huge on too. Um, I I don't want to attack Duvall on this one, so but it might, it might sound like I am. I want my strength and conditioning coordinator to look a lot more like Corey Campbell than I do Zach Duvall. And, and the reason for that is, is because the game has changed so much. Zach Duvall looked like he came out of the Husker Power program and he was competing in like Olympic strongman competitions. Uh, Corey Campbell looks like a guy that you can throw in an octagon and he's not going to miss a beat because he's both athletic and agile and contains a ton of power. That's kind of what you need these days. Now, obviously offensive linemen, defensive linemen, they need to be a little bit bigger, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, our wide receivers that weren't getting bulked up like offensive linemen, they were not winning at the line of scrimmage in, in against press coverage most of the time guy like Corey Campbell can change that. Corey Campbell is going to make our corners better in press coverage because he's going to give them that explosiveness, but they're still going to be agile. They're still going to be able to turn their hips, get those knees up. Um, I just – I want my strength and conditioning coordinators to look a lot more like Corey Campbell than I do Zach Duvall in this era. Do I think Zach Duvall would have been great 10 years ago for that program? Absolutely. But as the game has evolved, so has strength and conditioning. I mean, the strength and conditioning game is evolving every day, let alone every 10 years. And, and you know, mm-hmm. it needs to be constantly – you need to have constant new ideas brought in because of the way the game is changing, not only in the weight room, but off – you know, out of the weight room. 
it, it's funny after looking at Campbell's kind of bio or whatever, and you could tell this by looking at, but he was responsible for designing supplementary programmed aiming at adding lean mass to underdeveloped athletes and planning performance uh, preparation and recovery regeneration during his time at Purdue. Like the dude knows human body at this point. He's been doing it yeah. for over a decade now, but it's just kind of funny what he, one of his specialties was kind of bulking up guys or getting lean mass mm-hmm. on guys, which if you get in these raw athletes, like Jeremiah Charles, for instance, who you're not expecting anything out of his freshman year. That's the kind of body that you want to put, say, 20 pounds on in a year and and see what he can do on the field at that point, you know? Yeah, and you know what? Like, I'm going to go back and throw a bone here to to default because I don't think that all the failures in his weight room were direct correlation of him. Like, I think there were many reasons he failed. Yeah, and I think a lot of it was he he didn't have control, just like you kind of hear Raiola didn't have control last year, right, over the offensive line. I think one of our biggest gripes about both the defensive line and the offensive line was absolutely no agility. But specifically on the offensive offensive line side of the ball, we wanted those guys to be able to play all five positions, but we wanted them to play it from a size or strength position, not an agility position. So... You know, if his job is to take a guard and add another 40 to 50 pounds on that guy so he can be strong enough to play or sorry, a tackle to play guard or vice versa. Yeah, you're going to you're going to see some problems there because a even if they're all six, eight, let's just say they're all six, eight. They still don't have the same body type. A guard is going to be built different than a tackle. And if you're trying to match those, you're already you're already playing a step behind. And I don't I don't personally believe that was his decision i i think he's smart enough not to do that not to do that but he had to do what he had to do um for what the staff wanted and what they thought was best at the time they i i truly feel after year one the staffs thought that they were so far behind from a pure strength position that the only thing that they thought could fix it was just bulking everybody up and they they missed out on a lot of things elsewhere than just sheer mass I mean, it's hard to argue that because you've seen that in a lot of the, you know, videos that you're seeing guys benching 500 pounds, squatting seven, eight plates. Like there is a place for it, but mm-hmm. it's hard to have that in football, you know? Yeah, it's Think great about a guy like Ty Robinson. Think about Ty Robinson. Ty yeah. Robinson looked way more agile at 300 than he did at 340, which obviously, but he was still strong enough to play at 300. Yeah, you don't necessarily need a guy. You know, you know, everybody wants to say, well, we got our D tackles and they're 350 pounds. But number one, if the body can't sustain that or if your defense doesn't call to have a 350-pound nose tackle that can lock down two and three guys right at the at the point of contact because he's head up on the on the center, doesn't doesn't really matter. You can right. do you, I mean you're better off being a, a 300 pound D tackle that can play a one and be able to penetrate as opposed to being 340 and essentially being a non-factor on the field. We've seen as as the year went on, you know, once I simplified the defense, Robinson was still able to move pretty damn well at 330 or what have you. But imagine mm-hmm. that kid at 310. You win the Purdue game if he's at 310. Absolutely. He, he gets the quarterback. Um, and I, I'm not going to like, A, because I'm not a good video editor and I don't know how to pull it back up. But there are so many times the last couple of years where you see a defensive lineman in a position to make a play, even on a cutback, and you see them, you know, they perform the right footwork. They they just don't have the agility to make the play anymore. And some of these guys, you saw them make that play in high school, but they just put on so much mass that they weren't able to do it anymore. And I think oh, Corey Campbell's really gonna. Fo- I think Corey Campbell's really gonna focus on that fine line of, hey, what is the maximum amount of mass that we can put you in and still keep you athletic enough to play the game? I think that's a great point. And so you know, also was looking up him today. So it's Corey Campbell celebration day, apparently. But you know, when he was at <laughs> when he was at Cincinnati, he worked with twelve you know, NFL players at, when he was at Purdue, he worked with eight future NFL players. When he was at Baylor 20 plus during his tenure at Baylor, he also had four all Americans, um, a defensive 
12, you know, defense player of the year, offensive freshman of the year, big 12 offensive newcomer of the year. And they had 18, all big 12 selections. Like what he's doing, the weight room works. It, it also works when you can mesh that up with an offensive philosophy that's a, that correlates well with it. And I finally think that that's what Nebraska is going to have is, is an identity. And I, I know I've been just slamming my head against the wall the last few years, and I think I brought it up a few times, but when your offense doesn't have any pet plays to get yourself into a rhythm, you have no way to operate. And that was, you know, because the offense had no scheme. I feel like this is the first time that everyone will actually be going in the right direction, the same footing from strength and conditioning to head coach. And I think yeah. your offensive line is going to be one spot where you really see that come into play. They're already saying they're seeing bodies change in the weight room, which makes sense. Overall, it's going to take some time. But if they can get those guys a little bit more agile, I'm not so sure that that offensive line is completely broken. No, no, I don't. I don't think it is. I, we, you know, we've talked about it at nauseum. They just need to get some, some more athleticism built in. Um, and you're, this is more your field of expertise, and you can explain the difference to me. But I really, truly believe that there's a major difference between Campbell and Duvall on their biography. Whereas Duvall's degree is in exercise science, whereas Corey Campbell's is kinesiology. And I see a lot more Division One programs going the kinesiology route with their strength and conditioning coordinators. Um, obviously, exercise science is a huge part of it too. Like, let's not—they're in the same realm. Um, but explain the difference between kinesiology and just exercise science as a whole. So you know, it, it's tough because I don't feel like either one of them is wrong. You know, the you brought up kinesiology. So kinesiology is the study of how the body moves. So basically a lot of biomechanics and, and basically figuring out how everything operates with each other. Another good thing about anything with kinesthetics is it's, you're able to figure out how everything functions together. And if there's any imbalances or anything like that, it really helps to number one, he was a football player previously anyway at Georgia. So, He's kind of familiar with the rigors of, of at a high division one program with his background and, and experience and the places he's been. And it seems like his specialties. He, he doesn't really need to teach these guys much, but he needs to get the bodies fixed and how they move. Um, I'll say exercise science is I don't want to say a little bit more of an archaic study, but it's not on the cutting edge of things like everything else is. Um, it's yeah. And, and for the, re like a lot of these guys, and I'm sure Duvall does too. A lot of these guys go out and continue their education and they pick things up. Right. Absolutely. Like, it's, du it's Duvall's not, hey, not I'm done learning. Yeah. Duvall's not archaic. Like, again, we're not trying to shit on Duvall in any way, shape or form. Um, I actually used to work out when I was in high school at, at the, at the place that, Duvall founded with his brother Explosive Edge. Oh yeah, and they were very facility. yeah. Explosive Edge is very much about body movement, explosiveness. It was never really about me packing on 20, 30 pounds, which is what I needed at that time. It was how do you get more explosive and how do you get stronger in these quick bursts? And so knowing that Zach Duvall founded founded a gym based around that um is kind of what points me into the direction of he did not have full control of how he wanted to build these bodies. Um, and then again, you know, we hear some of the stuff about uh, Coach Riola arguing with Whipple and things like that. Like, I feel bad for Duvall um, because I think he did, he did things the best that he could with the hand that he was dealt and the rules that he was allowed to play within. I think if he would have been given complete control, we would have seen different results. I think you're I think you're 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 on the right track there. I don't feel like anybody outside of Frost had full full control of the program or on their side of the ball. One thing I did want to bring up real quick, since you brought up exercise science, I wanted to properly say what it is. So basically exercise science is how exercise and the human body interact, which it's 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 a great degree, especially for like strength and conditioning coaches or anything like that. But the way that the game is moving now how the body moves is more important than anything else at this point. Um, yeah. 
at a certain point, there's only so many exercises you can do. Then it's how can you how can you correlate what's going on in the weight room to the field and different things like that. So, you know, you brought it up. Explosive Edge is in a tremendous facility and everything, but it just never seemed like anybody was on the same page to get the machine fixed with last staff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, we don't want to harp on the last staff, but like we're just pointing out where we think you're going to see differences. And some of these differences, I think you're going to notice immediately. I mean, Matt rule already said some of these guys look different. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I wouldn't be surprised if, um, the polar bear isn't squatting as much next year as he is this year because they're going to work on his explosiveness and his agility. Uh, is that does that kind of suck for fans who are all about how much he lifts? Yeah, but if he's in there making plays in the backfield because he's more explosive and he can turn, is what, that what, what do you want at the end of the like, day? Yeah, so there there is a time and a place where like. These videos of guys squatting 700 pounds are huge. But if he's running a six-second 40 and cannot turn on a running back in the backfield, or if he turns too hard and he blows out his knee because his body isn't built to carry what he's carrying, that's a problem. And I think there's something to be said. You know, we lost uh, Thomas Fedoni to two off-season non-contact injuries. Uh, And he's not the only one. Like, the amount of non-contact injuries that happened in this program the last seven years, again, going all the way back to Riley, is what really worries me about what was going on in that strength and conditioning room. Um, now, some some of these were obviously down at Purdue on that one corner of the field that everybody has a problem with, right? Like, So let's take those out and let's look at Thomas Fedoni, who had two of them in the spring or summer in Lincoln, non-contact injuries. Both were they both to the same knee or were they opposite knees? I thought they were opposite knees, but I could okay. I could like, be wrong so on that. If there's if they're same knees, I'm obviously a little less worried because sometimes you just have a bum knee, right? Yeah, sometimes. But that if just it's happens. Both, if it's both knees, that tells me that he wasn't ready for what they were doing. Like just period. Yeah, and I mean if you if you load up a ligament with too much weight over a certain amount of time, it is going to wear on itself. And I mean, eventually it, it does become weaker because of that. So. And I mean, there's always the freak thing. A guy will blow out his knee running a 40 or. Oh, you, you know, see it all the time come, in the NFL. Come down wrong. Like, it, yeah, it, it happens. But the amount of it happening in Lincoln was kind of alarming to me. Yeah, soft tissue injuries, anytime you start getting those, that's when you have to start looking at your strength and conditioning program because that's really the only thing that can fix that. Uh, you know, not to not to shit on Duval or anything like that anymore because we've already done that. But I'm excited for the transition from Duval to Campbell, just with what Campbell wants to bring into the program, and seemingly the vision of everything is going in the same direction at this point. Uh, it seems like Matt Rule is really running this like a Fortune 500 company. Do you mm-hmm. think, and I, I'm pretty sure you've brought this up as well. You know, getting back down to Texas, do you think that's one? one of the most or the most important factor with the rule hires getting back into Texas as deeply as they are? I think getting back into Texas is important. Um, I just want to hit back on the Duvall, Corey Campbell thing one one, one more time really quickly, and then, and then I'll dive into this. I think Corey Campbell is going to see much more a much more immediate impact because of the work Duvall did. Um, I don't think Corey Campbell has to bulk and add agility anymore. I think he just has to focus on one part of that, and that's going to help out a ton. So, like, as as hard as we've been on Duvall right now, he still did a lot to get Corey Campbell into into a good spot to be successful. So, um, he's not leaving it in a bad spot. It's just yeah, there's some there was just out. a couple of things that needed to be tweaked. Um, and again, we both are in agreement that I don't we don't think that he had the freedom to do what he thought was best. There's no. Um, but getting back down into Texas, yeah, I think that's huge. I, there's a direct correlation to, you know, over the last 15 years, as we've got less and less kids out of Texas, um, to how, how we've fallen as a program. I think Texas Texas naturally was one of our our breeding grounds for, for great football. And, you know, there's a couple of reasons why, right? Like 
once the Big 12 was formed, we had several programs in Texas that you were able to play against. Yeah, you had Oklahoma, which all the kids in Texas hate. Um, so that was a big part of it. But in reality, a lot of the best football players in the country come out of Texas, Georgia, Florida, um, Florida California. just from a Florida from a speed aspect, California from a speed aspect. But great, true football players come out of places like Texas, Georgia. Um, it's three sixty five down there. It's it's every day. It's not a. It, it is a it is a way of life. Like. If you go watch Friday Night Lights, the movie, not the TV show, the actual movie, like that's what it's like down there. Um, you know, we we t- used to talk to Brian Munson a lot, and he he would hit on that. Like, it is a different way of life down here for football. Their high school foot- football stadiums are bigger than a lot of college football stadiums, even in small towns. Um, I think Texas is going to be huge for Nebraska. Now, I think we need to recruit it at a higher level than we are today. Rule has to show that these kids can be successful coming up here. Just because all of a sudden you landed a bunch of Texas kids, that doesn't matter. Um, we had we had, we've had some pretty good Texas kids come come up here in recent years. Uh, Tommy Armstrong was a Texas kid. I think Jamal Turner was a Texas kid who I just felt like was criminally underused while he was I think here. He was out of Houston. Yeah, um, but yeah, there you know, there's a ton of guys that that have come up from Texas. Amir Abdullah was from, was he from Texas or Alabama? Um, he was from or even Mississippi. Uh, he was from Alabama, I believe. Yeah. He was a Alabama, Mississippi. But the, the point is there are a lot of kids that, that we can go get out of Texas. And a lot of them are underlooked. Like when your state produces the amount of talent that it does, there's going to be a lot of underlooked talent that we can go scoop up. Um, you know, I, I argue the same thing about the state of Nebraska when it comes to both football and basketball. I, I think just because we're not pumping out the sheer size, there's a lot of kids here that go underlooked in in the skill position, specifically in basketball. We don't have a lot of six ten seven footers running around that are going D1 on the basketball court, but we have a lot of really good guards that go underlooked because they don't get to go play on elite AAU teams because we don't have the size. At the high school level, size matters in basketball more than anything. Um, so we have a yeah, lot I guess of guys it's hard are, to go against a seven foot guy from five foot five, right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of kids in our, in our state on the basketball side that are, that I think are truly criminally under recruited at, at the guard position. Cause they're that good, but they don't get the same notoriety because of the teams that they play on. That being said, I, I think there's probably a stronger case for that in Texas football. Um, there's there's guys that there's division one athletes that are playing second and third string as seniors at some schools in in Texas and at IMG in Florida, and you know not sometimes it's they're late developers sometimes they've they're just raw whatever whatever it is there's a lot of unknown talent that can be scraped and I think this staff takes pride in that which is why they use certain metrics to recruit that's why they recruit a lot of track kids that's why they recruit a lot of multi sport athletes. I mean, I can only make you so fast. I can make you stronger. That's not a problem. We can put weight on guys. We've seen that's not a problem as as well. But having that raw speed, like that's just something you can't teach. And I think Rule said it himself. He goes, you know, I I need to recruit fast guys because I can find a spot for fast guys to go. And I mean, it's hard if you're just getting guys that are skilled or have, you know, a certain profile you like and you've developed them in the past with a similar profile, it's hard to not be able to show that to those guys. Hey, we may not have done it in Nebraska, but here's a guy, Baylor, that we were able to turn into this, this, and this. I think that's one thing that the staff does have kind of in their back pocket yeah, at this and point. and I mean, I, here, here are two names that they didn't do it with, but the, it, it's the same model. Um, you know, Sean Oakman, who had a, a litany of problems while he was at Baylor, found innocent, but still had a litany of problems. Um, that was a guy that was very under recruited and became a beast. Uh, and Robert Griffin only had one football offer and it was Baylor. And I think he walked on to Baylor. He was on the track team. Um, but taking the model of those two guys when they got to Baylor is kind of what rule and this staff did. And, you know, I don't, I don't know the numbers of who they pumped into the NFL out of Baylor while they were there, but they did it right. And they found the guys that could do it. Um, and then, I mean, you even have 
the the kid who played quarterback for him at Temple that's with Carolina right now, PJ Walker. PJ yep. Walker has an incredible story um, beyond just you know he got to the league like he bounced around a little bit, but he he was a football player first, and the stat the staff takes chances on some guys and some of the guys that they've taken chances on um, have incredible stories, and that's something that they can turn to on the recruiting trail. And I mean that's that's what you need. I mean without having actual results at that place, that's that's kind of what you need. But since we were you know, kind of talking about, I did pull up, it does look like, let's see, he was at Baylor from 17 to 19. From what I was saying, you know, there's Kyle Fuller and uh, Jalen Hurd, who both went to, uh, both went pro. But there were a lot of guys after that, that, that were recruited by rule that went pro and different things like that. So he's got a track record of getting guys to the league. And like, I think one thing that they can point to, too, and I think one thing that we can take pride in as fans is as bad as the program has been, it's still not in as bad of a spot as when he took over Baylor. Like, I don't think – 45 scholarship players? Yeah. Well, not only that, like, how hard was it to go sit in a a parent's living room and say, hey, I'm going to take care of your kid after, you know, we just fired an athletic director and an entire football staff because they let rape go unchecked here. Like – and oh, by the way, forty-five players from that team that may or may not have been involved in any of that, whether they were named or not, are still part of the team, and they're setting our new culture. Like that's gonna be that. That was a that was the hardest job. I mean, that and what Bill O'Brien did at Penn State are probably the two toughest jobs I've ever seen in college football, and I I don't think we'll ever see it again. But. No, it's 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 hard to because those those kind of rebuilds or traumatic things only happen. Hell, I would say once in a quarter of a decade or you know quarter of a century. Like it's not often that that shit happens, but we we were unfortunate enough to see two of them kind of happen within a short amount of time. And I think that was Rule's best job building. You know what he's done in a short turn down there, taking him from one and 11 to, I think 11 and two within a two or three year span is, is nothing short of impressive, which is why he got the Carolina job. And, you know, I mean, for the pessimists out there, I guess I, I could, you could give me the argument that, Hey, because that team was so depleted when he got to Baylor, it was a lot easier for him to reset the foundation. I, I'd be willing to hear that argument. I don't know that I believe it, but I'd be willing to hear it. Yeah, I mean, they went seven and six. I think the year before uh, Rule took over, and I mean, it, it. Yeah, just because you have the ability to play that many freshmen doesn't mean it's a good thing for your program. Usually, usually yeah. something pretty traumatic happened to get you to that. That's that's fine. You know, you this. Let me ask you this: Is there anybody on this staff that you're not completely sold on? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I feel like it's safe to say Riola at this point, just because of he was on staff last year and we're not 100% sure what they want to do. But Satterfield and Rule and Riola seem to have the same ideas on everything at this point. So you have to kind of take that for what it is and, and feel comfortable there. Um, how does the secondary get better? Because it wasn't bad under Fisher. So you have yeah. to think that, there, there's big shoes to fill there. What can Dvorak do with the linebackers? Um, are they able to finally develop the depth? Because there's been absolutely none the last few years. Um, mm-hmm. Once the, the, the frontline guys go down, we've got nothing. So I would say, and then, you know, what, what can Knighton do with that defensive line? Are we able to finally get those guys developed? I mean, I think that's that's probably three or four coaches right there that, I'm interested to see what they do. I wouldn't say I doubt them by any stretch of the imagination, but with not a ton of previous results, I kind of want to see what they do. So I guess I'm going to have my eyes on those position groups a little bit more this off season. Um, If I had to pick somebody that I am most worried about, it's definitely not Raiola for, for a litany of reasons. One of the biggest being, I think Rule and Ed Foley are also going to be very heavily involved in that offensive line. With their I think you got five guys with offensive line coaching experience yeah. on staff. So 
And I feel like this staff is much more like very much more across the board. Like I I can see uh, Knight and Rule sitting down together and like, hey, if my offensive line is doing this, how are you countering it? Um, and which is much something very similar to what Wes Fleming said when he got on at Army on the defensive side of the ball as a quality control analyst. Um, he had mainly been offense up until that point. Him and the defensive coordinator worked a lot on stuff like that. I I feel like this staff is going to be much more like that. If I if I had to be worried about somebody, and it's not because of what they've done or haven't done, it's just because I've been in a similar position as a player. It's it's the new wide receiver coach being twenty three years old. Um, I was a twenty year old basketball player with a twenty two year old head coach at one point. I I know how that can go. Um, that being said, I think a lot of the guys that are going to be in that wide receiver room, uh, along with the support staff that they have to keep them level-headed, they're they're a lot more level-headed than I was at 20 years old. Um, and you know, there, there's a lot to be there's a lot of great things being said about him as a coach as well. That's just the one room that I'm a little bit worried about, and it's 100 percent because of the age thing. Right, wrong, or indifferent, I've been in a situation as a player with a coach that close in age. And you can butt heads and hopefully he's a little bit more level-headed than, than most young coaches at that age. Hopefully the players are a little bit more level-headed and they understand what's going on. Um, and I think there's enough support staff to kind of clear that up. Um, you know, running backs coach. I love, I love uh, Bethel's Barthel's Barthel. EJ Barthel. I, I like him. Obviously I liked uh, the guy that we let go in, from the year before. Um, I I don't know. I I'm so less worried about offensive line than than we have been in the past, and it's just because of how many people are going to be involved in it. And I brought I brought you know Ryle up just because you know he was the one. Well, that's holdover. the name that we always hear, right? That's still yeah, the name I mean, that we always hear. And he's the one holdover from the previous staff, so there has to be some reason why he was held over. Now I I feel like. The offensive line has been a problem for it seems like a decade now. So saying that is is a position group I want to keep an eye on. I don't I don't feel like it's going to blow any hair back or anything like that. But yeah, and it's like I tweeted out a couple of weeks ago when people were, uh, there was a huge thread that I got involved in that was you know kind of picking at Raul and I said, look, the guy had about eight minutes to fix ten years of bad coaching. What did you expect? Um, and then when you take into account the fact that he really had no say other than teaching these guys how to play within the scheme, but he had no, like he had no decision in the scheme, which I think was the biggest detriment. Like he saw what those guys were capable of and him and Whipple didn't see eye to eye because Whipple wanted to do what Whipple wanted to do. Whipple wasn't going to change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks and Whipple wasn't willing to adjust. It was his way because I'm here for a year. Yeah. This was his retirement plan. And it was a great retirement plan. I mean, he got paid out pretty well because of it. Yeah. I, so I got one last question for you, and then we can, can pretty yeah. much call it a night if you'd like to. So I'll bring it up again because you were an athlete. I was an athlete. Um, Matt Rule brought up Campbell, and he mentioned how demanding he is and, and what he expects out of his players. Do you feel like a demanding coach is still a coach that can get great results out of an athlete? Because I'm going to speak for me personally, I needed a coach that was demanding to get everything out of me. Because if you leave it up to an athlete, I feel like an athlete's going to cut corners. No matter, no matter how successful they want to be, there's a way to cut corners they will. So I feel like having that coach that demands the most out of you is the best way to be successful. I, I totally agree. Now, I think there's some fine lines on where, on where you get with stuff. But, you know, I'm thinking back to college when we were running suicides the amount of guys that when you go to when you go to turn right at the end, like when you go to make your turn, they jump and like hop instead of getting back down into a stance and and turning on a dime, um, just being lazy on things like that. Um, one thing that I did in in the last few years that I coached and um, probably had some of the best results with it was you know when we would do individual individual skill drills with, with basketball players, and you probably get away with this a little bit more in basketball than you do in football. Um, a, because there's less bodies and, and B, 
um, you're doing more, more, more stuff that involves only one person in basketball than you are in football, right? Like quarterbacks and receivers throwing, there's at least two guys involved. But if you're just working on individual moves in basketball, it's just one guy. Um, but I, I had a rule called no bad reps. So if you started to screw up the rep, you immediately stopped. You didn't finish the rep. You just got back in line and did it again. And it wasn't, and you know, we would go until everybody had like five perfect reps in a row and it wasn't to be a dick. And sometimes it made that portion of practice go way longer, but we talked about muscle memory in sports. We talked about all that stuff. If you let people get away with, with having bad reps regularly, then you're going to have that long-term detriment for them. So for me, I demanding is, is important, but at the same time, I think this kind of goes back to Bo and a little bit of Scott that they didn't make the they didn't help the kids understand why they were demanding of certain things, which is is why you got some of the results that you did. And it's probably the same for Mike Riley too. But you have to if you're a demanding coach, you you have to be demanding, but they have to understand why you're demanding what you're demanding. Um, and I think probably, I mean, I'll even go back to Callan. I, I think over the last you know, 12, 15 years, we've had coaches that were demanding, but they weren't always clear as to why they were demanding and what they were specifically demanding. Like there's a difference between demanding a perfect rep, a rep and why you're demanding that rep. Yeah. And being a dick to just be a dick isn't a great method of coaching people. (laughs) No, no, absolutely not. You can be an ass to me, but if you're being an ass, give me a damn good reason why. And it's going to work out like, Saban's method of coaching may not be very uh, hugs and kisses, but he's going to get the best out of you. And you know that you know why you're doing what you're doing. There's a method behind the madness. Yeah. And I think, I think rule and staff are very demanding, but they are, you know, they've done a better job than most, most coaches around the country and showing that, Hey, we're going to support you no matter what too. I mean, how many coaches are retweeting a kid getting an offer from a, from a competitive school? Not many. Like you don't see that. And we talked about it. Part of this is recruiting the portal down the road too, but part of it is is truly showing these kids that hey, we want what's best for you. And while we think we are best for you, if if that's not what you come up with, we're going to support you regardless because we're making a true connection with you and your family. It's not just about getting you to come here. Yeah, they've done a tremendous job with that. And you know, it's, I, I I guess maybe one more question: If you had to put a grade on rules tenure so far what would you rate it um man that's hard because i'm i'm results oriented right i know Uh, it's 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 a tough question i didn't want to ask it but i feel like no 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 it's a great question because i i think this moves as we go on like i really want to give him it's a sliding i really want to give him an a minus because i i think what he's done recruiting wise um is terrific. You know, you're recruiting up against five straight years, no six straight years, no bowl game. Um, you know, you get get the job essentially on Black Friday, and the most of the recruiting is done for early signing day, right? And uh, last I saw, I think we did creep into a top twenty five class, right? Yep, I believe we were Nebraska was twenty three, twenty four, and twenty eight with a composite of a twenty four overall, I believe. Okay. So while I want to give him an A minus, I'm going to go out on a, I'm I'm going to actually just grade it a C plus right now. Um, that being said, I think the difference between C plus and A minus is like one to two players when it comes to recruiting. Um, there's there's a few things that they've done that I question, um, and I, I won't go totally on air with all of those. I I just there's a few things that I question, um, and then. You know, we just we didn't get a couple of those big portal guys that we really wanted. Uh, you know, I don't give them too much. I don't give them too much blame for the flip on the lineman going to OU, but you got to grade that against them a little bit because they slipped up somewhere. Um, whether it be, you know, things out of their control or not, they went after a kid who ultimately flipped, which means you were willing to sign a kid that ultimately didn't want to be here. To me, that's a bad sign. Um, but you only had that happen with one guy. Um, on the flip side, they went and got several guys who decommitted and committed elsewhere, and they were able to bring those guys back in. So <clears throat> I give them a C plus. Um, 
in terms of staff hires itself, I'm going to give it a B plus. Uh, I think that there's either a guy or two that they could have kept from the old staff that would leave me a little bit more confident or, you know, would I have rather gotten somebody else for offensive coordinator? Potentially, you know, I would have loved Jake Peets or a Joe Brady or something like that. Um, but I understand, you know, you you didn't get those guys for X, Y, Z reason, and you had to go get this guy. Like, I just – there's a couple spots on the staff where I feel like we could have filled out a little bit better based off things that we were hearing, um, which ultimately ultimately led to a little bit of a, uh, a, a deflated opinion of who they brought in. At one point, I had a deflated opinion of Matt Rule coming in because, you know, I was under the impression that we – offered several guys that were on my top five list. So, and rule has totally flipped my opinion on him. So I, overall I'm giving him a C plus right now after the spring game, I can de- easily see us being at a B plus a minus. That's fair. You know, I was, I was against the rule hired first as well. Um, just because of a certain thought process I had, as I sat back and looked at what he did in college and different things like that, changed my opinion on him pretty quickly. And then his results on the recruiting trail have been what they are. Um, I'll, I'm not, I'll give him a solid B. Um, I wanted to go a, or at least a B plus, but I feel like a B is a solid starting grade with the way he put his staff together with experienced coordinators, inexperienced, I shouldn't say inexperienced, but young guys at the position spots. Um, and then what he's done on the, you know, we'll say player development side of the ball is absolutely huge. Um, I think that they're finally going to have enough support, not only on the field, but off the field for these guys. And I think that's going to go a long way toward um, just overall development of the program to getting it where it should be. Now, let me ask you this, because this this goes into my answer a little bit. Are we being a little bullish because we also don't want to dive all the way into the Kool-Aid just yet? You know, honestly, I'm I'm pretty, uh, pretty far in on the on the Kool-Aid, but I I, I'm trying to uh, at least hold back a bit just because I feel like we've been burned pretty hard the last four years. And it was some pretty obvious signs that I think a lot of us saw and, and much like a terrible relationship, you just look past them and say, Hey, it's fine. It's no big deal. That'll take care of itself. I think that's yep. been a lot of the problem that a lot of us have, have done because it's for us. You know, we were told by him that no one cares more about this program than he did. So, yeah, no, um, definitely. I think, I think yeah. part of my reason that I'm, I'm in that C to C plus range is because, I'm a, I am I'm 100% switching to results-oriented grading, and we don't have tangible results yet. But they've done enough to point me to, to at least show me that the needle's pointed in the right direction. It might be a little bit more vertical than it is to the right, but um, it's definitely not going backwards. No, it's just I feel like this is the first time that you can say that it feels like there's actually been a plan in place and everything's kind of going in the right direction with everyone going in the right direction. So yeah, I'm one, excited to see what they do. Yeah, no, me too. I'm I'm very cautiously optimistic. One thing that I wish that we could get numbers on and, you know, it's going to take somebody with media credentials, not us to ask this question. But I'd be curious to know how many non-committable offers they plan on offering, the throwing out these next couple of years. Because it seems like we did a lot of that the last seven years. Of you know, we're going to th- go out and throw out three hundred offers. These so far they have seemed much more targeted in what they're going after and who they're going after. And I want to know, like, is that the plan moving forward? Are we going to have one hundred and fifty offers out every year? Are we going to have you know? 75 offers out every year knowing that you can only take 25 guys yeah it just it's always that tough road to play because i feel like you're putting not only the player in a bad situation or bad position but numbers wise you're putting yourself in a in a rough situation as well just because you don't want that used car salesman tag attached to your school and i feel like that's yeah and i totally i totally understand the the idea that you know let's let's say they throw out 50 offers 25 of those are ultimately non-committable at some point, but it's again, going back to real estate, it's you you have a backup offer out there if something falls through with your first offer. And I think players understand that part of it. Now, if you have 
300 offers out there, then, then we're getting a little carried away. Um, I think there's a difference between throwing out two offers for the same spot that you want to fill, knowing that you're only going to get one. But if you're throwing 75 out for that same spot, eh, that's a Makes problem. it a little hard to take you seriously at that point. Yeah, exactly. So I'd be curious to know if somebody could get that number for us and say, hey, how many offers are you throwing out there and how many are committable versus non-committable? Because I also think this year. Yeah, we should. I also don't think that they're going to, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to take full high school recruiting classes every year because they're going to want to recruit the portal too. I think then if you're not adjusting to the, the way that college football is going, you're bound to be left behind. So that's leaving spots open for the portal. That's, that's, you know, NIL, there, there's different things like that, that if you don't embrace it, you're going to get left behind. And it seems like the staff has fully embraced it. Yeah. I do feel like this staff though, come year three, come year four, they want to be a lot closer to a full class of high school kids coming in than they do want to be picking out of the portal. Um, I don't, I three years from now, I don't foresee them going to get 14 portal players every year. I honestly I feel like if you can get to the point where you're say a high note would be eight, mm-hmm. normal number would be close to five. But if you're in that eight, five to eight range every year, I, I feel like that's exactly where you want to be. Cause then you've got that yeah. high school pipeline of young talent coming in that you can develop over a red shirt year and then see what you got from there. Yeah, and if you're going to get 14 to 20 guys out of the portal every year, it shows that you're not you're not developing the high school kids enough. Exactly, which makes it harder to recruit them and backfill the roster, anyways. And you run into the problem we've seen the last few years. So, yeah. Well, Drake, I think this was a fabulous show, my man. I think we should uh, put a put a put a uh, needle in it and call it a night. You're not with us Wednesday, yeah. are you? Nope, I have. It's one of my last two Wednesday night Creighton games. Um, if we want to push the Thursday, I can make that happen. But other than that, I will see you guys after Super Bowl Sunday because I'll be in Florida this weekend. We'll do what we can because we didn't get a chance to break that game down like I thought we were going to. Let's see what we can do yeah. to try to get the boys together a little bit later in this week, maybe break on the Super Bowl. But, yeah. Drake, if we don't before then, thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, we'll see you next week. Everybody, thanks for joining see us. Buddy. Have a good week or week, everybody. Thanks, guys. Members of the congregation, let's raise our Kool-Aid filled glasses and drink to all the things that were, are, and forever will be Nebraska Cornhuskers. Go Big Red. A Herd at Sports Network production.